Today's episode of The Big Picture on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and L.A., and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics, fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. We're trying to raise 250000 If you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com backslash WCK. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the burning sensations running deep in our loins. All across the country, millions of Americans are bunkered down in their homes. Some of those people are alone. Some are cocooned with their partners. Some are surrounded by their screaming children. And they all have one thing in common. These people are trapped and they are horny. So today on The Big Picture, we will provide, if not tender loving care, then the next best thing. We will present the 10 best erotic thrillers, an endangered species in the menagerie of 21st century movies. Here to join us is a fine, handsome fellow, the New York Times critic at large and the co-host of Still Processing, Wesley Morris. Wesley, how are you? I'm great. Endangered species? I think this shit is dead. <laughs> well, we're going to get there. There's, there. There is something on the horizon in the erotic thriller zone that oh. might be saving us, but it's going to be a oh. while. Okay. So let's let's just start. Amanda, I want to start with you. Let's just talk about erotic thrillers. What do they mean to you? When did you become aware of them? Is this a genre that you care about? It is. I realized doing the research for this show that this is what taught me about sex in a lot of ways. I'm of a generation Mm -hmm. where these movies were being made and I was seeing them and I was seeing things that I had never seen before, never really heard of before. Wasn't a lot of conversation about the different types of eroticism at my Atlanta, Georgia dinner table, believe it or not. So I have a real nostalgic attachment to these. They take me to a a time and place as much as they do to a specific uh, physical or emotional reaction, though, you know, that can happen too. And it's really interesting to watch them as an adult because I definitely understood some things when I watched them, but I didn't understand all of them. And it was both an educational process and a process of of missing some things, I guess. Yeah. Wesley, yeah. can you just tell me, you know, you've been write, you know, writing film criticism for, for a long time now, and, and you also have a, a good sense of human sexuality at the cinema. Um, what, when did these movies kind of come onto your radar? Maybe you can give us a little bit of a pocket history of the, of the subgenre. Sean, you are saying so many things. Like the 12-year-old boy in me who is that's about the age I was when I started watching these movies, you just said, you just said, you said come. You said I mean, this is we're gonna we're gonna Pee-wee's Playhouse this one. And anytime somebody uses an er- uses some erotic, thr- erotic thriller term, we all kind of have to go, ah! um, um the f- the first one that I ever saw in the movie theater in its entirety is probably Fatal Attraction. Um, that movie came out when I was 
11 years old and I had the kind of parents who just were like, as long as you don't get in trouble and you're not doing anything that's going to get you locked up, we trust you. And um, I was trusted to see Fatal Attraction pretty much every, I don't remember if I saw, you know, we did we did a rewatchables on Fatal Attraction and I don't remember if I confess or if I tallied the number of times I saw it when it was in theaters and I was 11. Um, but it was at least three times and it was, you know, back then it was an ordeal to get into a rated R movie as a person who I was probably, I was probably the same height I am now. (laughs) (laughs) If, if not, if not smaller and you know, I only I've only ever been turned away from one movie in my entire life, and you're gonna die when I tell you what it is. What is it? Mermaids. Stop. <laughs> Mermaids. Mermaids was rated, I believe it was rated PG 13. And the 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 box office attendant who would become my boss at some point uh would not let me in. And you're 13, you don't have ID, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> can't, was, you can't prove was the New York you're not Times 12. Dean Bacay the box office attendant? <laughs> Ooh. Uh no, no, no. Oh, I see. No, no, no. His name was Chris, and he would become my boss at that movie theater. Um, anyway, Mermaids was the only movie I've ever been told I can't see. And I've you know, I saw a lot of movies when I was like 11, 12, 13. Um, but Mermaids was the one I was, and I still have never seen it in, in its entirety. I've never seen it. I was so bitter. <laughs> That the best I was ever going to do was the share video that came out of it. Anyway, um, so Fatal Attraction was the first one. And it wasn't like you had to do a lot of work to find erotic thrillers. They, It was just part of your movie-going diet in the 1980s and, 19, and early 1990s. Early to mid-1990s. And I... Don't, it's funny, Amanda. I don't remember the kind of sex I saw. I mean, I know the you know the Fatal Attraction, Sex on the Sink. I was much more caught up in in with even with the bad ones in the like the stakes of the sex, and I was always aware that of how the genre was working without my being aware that I was participating in watching a genre. Um, which we can talk about later. But I mean, that was the first one I saw and that was the first one. I mean, it's it's the paradigmatic one um, for, for, for that genre and for what we can talk about, we're going to have to talk about later given what's on our list, uh, the um, blank from hell genre. Because, you know, I'm, writing, I'm in the middle of writing this piece. I'm writing it like, like a, I don't know if it's going to be an enormous piece, it can only be but so big, but I'm, I've been working on this thing for like a year. And right when you emailed me, you guys, I was this, I was like, this is, I might finish it this week. I haven't finished it yet, but I'll finish it next week. But yeah, I've been working on this thing <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> and, um, it's my, it might be my favorite, my favorite movie genre. So I'm glad you invited me to come on. You guys didn't know this, but it's my favorite. It's my favorite kind of movie. To, if I had to pick one, it'd be this one. Let's just say that uh, I had a very strong sense that you would be interested in having this conversation. Um, and and you too, Amanda. Although I think if this were just Amanda and I, it'd be a slightly different podcast. So I'm glad that it's the three of us. I feel like let's talk about some of the things that we know have to be there when you're watching an erotic thriller. What are mm-hmm. the kind of signature aspects of these kinds of movies? I was trying, I jotted down a few thoughts about this. 
I feel like there are some cliches that are also essential. This like a certain type of score, very saxophone heavy, um, a, a certain amount of grunting and a certain <laughs> amount of physical endurance. I think you can expect from your actors. I think especially the look of these movies going back through mm. these 80s and 90s movies in particular, mm-hmm. it all kind of seems like most of them have Vaseline on the lens. It seems like there's a lot of steam. I like Literally. that you're saying it's Vaseline, Sean. I mean, yet again. <laughs> just well, you know, there was a lot of you're Vaseline bringing on some set, G-rated. Presumably. You're bringing some G-rated stuff to this to this like NT17 show. <laughs> I'm trying to just keep it as Catholic as I can. You know, All I'm right, doing my well. very best. There's a, there's a lot of confusion inside of me right now. Um, but like for you guys, what are what are the hallmarks? What are the signatures of this of this genre, Amanda? Well, for me, it's the sex. And, you know, I, Wesley's going to bring all of the actual, the, the film criticism, uh, as well as the the jokes, which is why we love Wesley. But I do find that the first thing that I think about in these movies is like, what is the specific sex scene that I remember? And that's mm-hmm. how I identify them. Mm-hmm. And I And there is a quality to the sex scene that is very specific. It's very 80s, 90s. It has that soft core feel and it just goes on like a little longer than maybe it has to for the for the ne- the needs of the movie there's a real and and I think that actually this is true to an extent of this genre which is you finally make it to the 70s and really the 80s and you're allowed to show sex in mm-hmm. movies and so mm-hmm. it's a whole group of people being like oh wow we can now just show sex and we're going to show the sex and the sex scenes have that feeling of we're doing this because we're allowed to show you some sex. And 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 that had an effect on me, a lasting, lasting effect on me. Mm. But but what is it? What is the lasting effect? I guess, I mean, I don't know how how deep do we go into this. I do kind of think it's how I learned what sex is, because mm-hmm. like what else was I learning? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I went to school in Atlanta, Georgia. Let me tell you that the sex ed classes are not exactly about here is the possibility of experience that is waiting for you kids. It's like you're going to die eight different ways if you have sex, just so you know. And God love my parents, but they were not really of the will take you to see anything situation. Mm-hmm. I, a very scarring early movie experience for me was seeing Jerry Maguire sitting next to my mother. And you will recall the very early oh, scene yeah. between um, Tom Cruise and... The great Kelly, Kelly Preston. Preston. Yeah. Yes, Kelly Preston. And she screams, never stop fucking me against the bookshelf, which I clearly have imprinted that I wanted to die. <laughs> so this was a little bit um, how I was learning things. And chronologically, it was also interesting. I probably started watching them mid-90s. I think Wild Things and Cruel Intentions are really when I age-wise oh, yeah. had the access. Mm-hmm. And the interest and kind of the understanding of what was going on. And so that's a very specific self-conscious, almost meta type of a winking sex scene. Like a lot of kids who have had some access to some headier stuff and are, are expressing themselves. But so I started there and then going backwards to your uh, basic instincts and your fatal attractions and your body heats um, is an interesting direction with which to learn about sex because they become more self-conscious, I guess, as it goes on. And at the very beginning, it's just kind of like, well, now we're just going to show some people fucking for a while. It's pretty wild. 
world to, to, yeah. to see yeah. when you're 15 years old. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, sex was always a, sex was always around. Like I went to a school that had I went to an all boys school that um, after about a year and a half of my being there, co-edited itself. And so you essentially had this very biblical situation where you just, it was all men. And then all of a sudden, here come all these women. And it was just very clarifying for, for, for all of us, really. Um, you know, having women, having, having, having women show up and having the boys then decide, oh, wait, look at all these, <laughs> look at this. I'm definitely, definitely into these people, not whatever was going on over here. Um, <laughs> I was, I grew up around a lot of rap. I grew up with MTV um, and the and the way women were treated in music videos. And even when it wasn't bad and, you know, what Tawny Katane was doing on the hood of David Coverdale's car was like ostensibly consensual, it also had one purpose. <laughs> and... So there was there was that visualization. There was the way women functioned in in hip hop, and then there was these movies. And the thing about erotic thrillers that I realized pretty quickly was that it really was a romantic comedy with murder and sex, right? I mean, the, the good ones, there are some exceptions that I still count as being erotic thrillers that don't necessarily follow this formula. But basically what we're talking about is a man and a woman who who occupy equal parts of the plot. And you you rarely have a scene without them that doesn't or or, or that doesn't involve them in some way. Um and I liked how in those movies, unlike in those music videos and in in the rap we all listen to, the women were, I mean, in most cases, they're agents of doom, right? Because they're the the sex is the sex is mutual and frequently consensual, but morally they are there to punish men in some way. Um, but I, that's too sophisticated for like young me. I just liked that I get to see my favorite, that I got to see my favorite actors have sex or like just be in any movie for one thing, but mostly have sex, right? Um, and, and pretty much the thing about this genre that's amazing is everybody did one unless you were just too, too good. Like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan never made one. Well, that's not true. Meg Ryan eventually she when did. times got tough, when times, yes. when, when she decided she had had enough of being you know, the Meg Ryan, she took a turn. But before that, I mean, those were things that there was a class of actor, but pretty much setting those two people aside, everybody made an erotic thriller, pretty much. Yeah, and one thing that is that jumps out as you rewatch some of these films is um, I, I'm just convinced that our society has gotten so much more conservative in the last 20 years. I mean, there are, there are sex scenes in these movies. You know, we'll talk a little bit about Body of Evidence, but Body of Evidence is just an astonishingly... It's graphic amazing. movie. It's amazing. It is fascinating what that I mean that's an R-rated movie that played in thousands of movie theaters in the early 1990s and you know I I think there's probably a variety of reasons for that. I I probably the first of these films that I saw was Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct as a as a preteen boy was like finding the shroud of Turin like it was like <laughs> it was like an amulet with extraordinary power 
And if you could get your way into a movie theater or something, I think it was kind of a revolutionary act. I mean, I really think that that was the most, I think I had, I had a not dissimilar experience, Wesley. I was really into rap as well. I watched a lot of MTV. I felt a very sexualized culture, but not a culture of sex until I saw these movies. I, you mm-hmm. know, I didn't have my hands on pornography. This was literally to see Sharon Stone astride Michael Douglas was probably the introduction to sex in my life. In addition to the fact that the movie itself, which we won't really talk about that much because um, the Rewatchables did an episode on that movie earlier this week, and I would encourage people to check that out if they want a quite in-depth exploration of the story and the storytelling of Basic Instinct. But <laughs> to, to, to see that at an early age, I don't know if it necessarily normalizes those sex acts, but it made them feel closer to what expectations were around sex. And Amanda said something so funny to me uh, when we first started researching this, which was, you know, I think it's probably true for her husband and it's true for me. I mean, I think the way that the relationship that a lot of straight men have to sex is informed by shit like Basic Instinct and Body Double and movies that are were purposefully almost like, as you're saying, like rom-com humorous perversions of what sex was supposed to be like. And also like at super high stakes, they were meant to be high tension, melodramatic stories about people who were obsessed with sex. And that isn't what the relationship most people have to sex. What do you think, Amanda? Wesley, what I actually said to Sean was imagine dating a generation of men who learned about sex from Brian De Palma films, which is a, is a true thing that I lived through and many other people have. Um, with Zach have, or with with some other relationship? <laughs> well, let's you know what. Let's not get into specifics, shall we? <laughs> I, I, I will say though, as soon as I was like, okay, we're going to be doing erotic thrillers. My husband Zach, who has really he is supportive, but is not really trying to get involved in the day today of this podcast. Within thirty minutes, had emailed me his own personal rankings of erotic yes. thriller films. Well, I mean, which we then is, needed to watch in the next week. He was this, very involved. That's why we love your husband. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's it's one of many, but it was also telling. And I think he and and Sean and a lot of men of a certain age both learned about sex and learned like what the cool version of sex was or, you know, what to be interested in and how to think about sex from some very specific reference points. And Mm. I think I, I'm sure I learned what to think about sex and, you know, how to, how sex works from these movies as well. But, you know, it was a little different watching these movies as a woman, as opposed to a young man, but just also because the way that you experience a sexualized culture is, is especially in the nineties was very different as a young woman. And so for me, it was more like a, Oh, so this is what, is this what everybody is thinking and doing while I'm just kind of this, this is how it works. Like, okay, interesting. Gonna end, you know, happily that wasn't totally true all of the time. I have not been involved in any homicides related to my sex life yet. Um, yeah, but, but, it did feel like for for me i was like oh is is this this how it works and then and especially as a teenager being impressionable it takes some time to separate separate those those lessons if you will yeah well i just was going to say well maybe this is the part where we get into this um, but I think I understand, like the reason that we're allowed to feel this way about the sex in these movies is I think the the genre itself 
comes from a very specific, I mean, I'm going to posit, I am positing in this thing that I'm writing. I don't have anybody telling me this. I'm just kind of deducing and like using my common sense. I could be wrong. And Sean, I feel like you might, you might actually have an answer. Um, but I mean, I assume that these movies were meant to combat the arrival of the VCR and the fact that you could watch porn in your house. So what you were, what they were doing were taking movie stars putting them in, in 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 murder mystery plots that also had sex. And then Joe Esterhaus came along and changed everything. These movies were a boon to video stores. I had a friend yesterday when I told him we were doing this, email me to tell me that when he worked at a video store, the most rented tape in the whole store was a movie called The Lover, starring oh. Tony Leung and Jane oh, March. Oh, yes. Uh, That's very Jacques controversial. Very yeah. controversial. Very graphic movie. But it was not... It was not X-rated, I don't think, or it may have been X-rated. No, but it was no, no. There was in the a main fight section. about right. There was a fight about the rating because of the sex and because, well, I mean, we don't have to relitigate the lover, but because uh, it's not doesn't really qualify for what we're talking about. But um, you know, there was some questions about Jane March's age um, yes. and the sex she was being required to have in this movie. Um, but you know, Jane March is the star of a movie we're not going to talk about today. But to me, but I mean, and I didn't bring it up with us, but it'll figure very prominently in this thing that I'm working on, Color of Night, the, I would say, like an extremely important <laughs> version of the, of the genre that we're talking about today. Do you guys, have you seen this movie? Oh, yeah. Yes, Sean, I Sean, is Color, is, is Color of Night the one that was on Zach's list that you were like, yeah, that's just the straight porn option? It's it's Bruce Willis and yes, um, yeah, it's that's it. I, Jane yeah. Jane March is is fearless. That's how I'll describe it. She is uh she's willing to really put herself out there. Um, I think it's like pretty bad, like borderline unwatchable. But it's also, terrible. but it, it it is it's a significant. It's an aftermath of Basic Instinct kind of movie. There was like a rush of more movies, and the, uh, Basic Instinct is kind of the second wave. And maybe we should just talk about that quickly. So you know, like in movie history, obviously you've got a lot of romances you've got a lot of noirs and detective thrillers um as amanda cited in the 70s and 80s when the mpaa started to loosen up and our culture started to get a little bit more aggressive it got more violent you know we got the introduction of a lot more sort of um like reactionary reagan era art which is trying to push the limits and so you take those noir and detective stories you mash them up with these romance stories you sprinkle in a little bit of sex and then you get the erotic thriller it probably starts would you, when would you say is the, the the birth of this of this genre, Wesley? I mean, I think that you'd ha- I mean, if you want to do it properly, you'd have to start in the 70s, right? You would have to start in the 70s with all those exploitation movies. Um, things like Looking for Mr. Goodbar, uh, Looking. Remember that? Uh, yeah. Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Looking, The Eyes of Laura Mars. And then that, that first wave ends in 1980 with Cruising. And... Cruising, I mean, again, Pacino, because Al Pacino is Al Pacino, he kind of muddles the sort of um, the even structure of these movies. But all of those erotic thrillers were what I would say are thrillers with thrillers about sex. They're not necessarily erotic thrillers because the people having sex, except for looking for Mr. Goodbar, they're not about punishing anybody for having had the sex. Um cruising is a different thing it's trying to find it's like using sex as a lure to solve a, a sex mystery um but those are all movies that took both 
both the pursuit of relationships and the the violence against people um, having sex or sexual violence, uh, it took them seriously, like very seriously, um, despite how ridiculous they were. And then in the eighties, by the time you get to by the time you get to cruising, you've set a bar for realism um, and verisimilitude and grittiness. But you've also set a bar pretty low or high, depending on how you look at it, for absurdity, too. Um, So I think the thing that winds up happening is, like, once the VCR comes in and the adult movie can be watched in your house, there needed to be something to keep people away from, to keep people going to movie theaters who also wanted sex. So they started, I, I think... The the narrativization of 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 people having sex, building plots around sexual relationships, um, is is why the, is where the thriller, where the erotic thriller comes out of 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 it's sort of solving a commercial problem or an industrial problem. But it's funny because the first the first bunch of these are are re, essentially remakes, right? Body Heat's a remake. Um, the Postman always always rings twice as a remake, and they're remakes of films noir. But they're but they're well, William Hurt and Kathleen Turner weren't movie stars when Body Heat came out, but but Jessica Lange and Jack Nicholson certainly were. Um, and there is this sort of remake karaoke quality to quality to both those movies um, that kind of makes them dull in a lot of ways, but gives them something to play against and gives them like a really solid undergirding to have all the sex. I mean, the one difference, the one thing that's not dull say about something like body heat is, um, how can I put this? Kathleen Turner just takes her clothes off in the movie. You know, like I just, <laughs> that's just not something that Barbara Stanwyck did in double indemnity. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. 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 I mean, so that's it, the it, thing it, that, that that's, they're, they're an excuse for Kathleen Turner to do that. Exactly. Um, Amanda, you pointed out that there is like a, a key function in a lot of these movies. It's not true in Body Heat, but it is true in a lot of these movies, which is something that happens right at the beginning of the movie every single time. Yeah, you put together a, like, how do you know if you're in an erotic thriller uh, guideline? And one way to know is that someone dies in a sexual situation within the first 90 seconds of the movie. It's like a cold open of sexual violence. And it happens even in the 10 movies that we have listed. Just a tremendous number of times. It just is a very, it's formulaic essentially. And you know, it, that's good writing because you get sex. Uh, usually you get some tits and you get violence very early on. You're just letting people know what the movie is about and what's going to come. Sorry, Wesley. I just walked right into that. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Sure that won't be the last time that happens. Uh, so, I mean, I think the other reason for that, there's a couple of reasons for that. One for that sort of rental audience that you're talking about, Wesley, yeah. people get a chance to know what they're getting right away. They're like, I'm getting sex right off the bat. Two, you get to sense that there's violence in this movie and that this is a certain kind of a genre drama. Three, if you're watching a movie with your kids and you see that there's a sex scene in the opening sequence, you know you can shuttle them out of the room and watch the movie by yourself. There's like some purposeful reasons for this. Yeah. And I think it cal- yeah. calcified over time for a very good reason. But also, I mean, it is formulaic, but... So are war films, so are Westerns, so are all genres rely on these strategies. There isn't a there isn't a dead man on a bed that opens one of these movies where I saw it and was like, well, I've I've seen this 10,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> what, what else y'all got? 
That it doesn't that doesn't happen one time. Anytime it happens, I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I feel similarly. It doesn't, it's certainly not a turn off. Even though the other thing that is so perverse about this is I think it did create for some people this relationship between sex and violence in their minds where you think that in order to um be in an adult sexual situation, you need to have an ice pick, which is just just absolutely absurd. But I do think that it had that effect on people for a little while. And a lot of the outrage culture that grew out of these movies was oriented around not just the sex, although the sex is probably more specifically concerning to people, but also just the high levels of violence that take place in most of these movies. Um, I guess, who do you guys think of as the 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 patron saints of of this this work? Who who are the key figures? I mean. Adrian Lyne, because he, you know, every every movie, well, Joe Esterhaus. You know, we have to start with Joe Esterhaus, right? Like, he is the person who basically, because it isn't so much that um, it, anybody, I guess, could make these, but you really have to have nerve to do what these movies actually try to do. Um I mean, just think about Jagged Edge, right? I mean, well, let's, let's sort of say what Joe Ester, all, all that Joe Esterhouse has done. I mean, he's pretty much, more than half his screenplays are in this genre. So he wrote Nine and a Half Weeks. Um, he wrote uh, Jagged Edge. He wrote Basic Instinct. He wrote, oh, you help me out. I'm, I'm not going to remember Showgirls. Show, well, fame, yeah, of course. <laughs> We're not talking about Showgirls today, but he is responsible for that. Um, I mean, Flashdance was was Flash his, Dance. which is not Flat, not quite in the was, zone, but yeah, he wrote Sliver, wrote, he wrote Jade, Cursor, yeah, Sliver and Jade, definitely erotic erotic thrillers. Um, but but Flashdance is a sort of formal precursor, not so much for the violence part of the sex, but for the um sensational and and erogenous aspect of of sex and sexuality like what a body could be shown doing, what what you could write a body to do um, and then have a director and an actor, if you're Jennifer Beals, do it. Um, that movie is a total fantasy of, 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 of woman, of woman dumb, because womanhood is not really up on offer in that movie. Um, but yeah, Joe Esterhaus is one of them. Adrian Lyne, who directed... Um, at least one Esther Haas movie. Um, you know, Michael Douglas, who who is the only actor on our list, or the only actor that 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 at all who's made several and was committed to the sex in, in all of them too. He's kind of the um, Bill Russell of the erotic thriller. You know, he's got <laughs> he's got ten ten titles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh who else? I mean, we there's probably some composer. There's probably some I have not done all the all the homework on the composers, but I mean, anyway, I mean the 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 sound of these movies, because there's no there might be they might those movies might have soundtracks, but they're not soundtrack movies. They're score movies. And I would say that the high point, I mean, De Palma, oh, De Palma, well, De Palma's guy is the guy that I'm thinking of. And he did body double and and uh what's his name? I can't remember now. Pino Dinaggio. Oh yeah, there you go. Shame on me. You know, his he, he's his, the god. He's, his his sound is the sound. I mean, it's keyboards and saxophones. Um, but I mean, Graham Ravel's score for Body of Evidence is, um, it's not, I mean, it, it is a high watermark for, um, 
because he had to score all he had to score all of the sex that happens in that movie. And so the music has to sort of make sense and it can't be thriller music, right? It can't be sex scored with like you can't have that basic instinct sound. You need actual what for 1993 would have been sexy music. Um and that Graham Ravel score I think is very very good for what you're being asked to watch people do when it's playing. The other thing is um, there's not a lot of dialogue in these movies. I, I went hunting well, for great for great scenes and a lot of the scenes are just men walking behind women who are walking through <laughs> art galleries or obviously the sex scenes in which there's not a lot of dialogue. Um, I, don't, I don't know, Amanda. Yeah, you, you look like you want to say something. The, I mean, that's the point. <laughs> for decades, we had to have sex scenes with talking because you weren't allowed to show sex, right? And finally... People don't have to talk anymore. We can just see it. These are a visual medium. I'm okay with it. Please let cinema do its job. Let cinema do its job. But I will say that it's not, but the thing about the genre though, is that there is actually, I would say there's a lot of talking and the talking isn't happening during the sex necessarily, but it's like, take a movie like Fatal Attraction, which we don't need to redo here um, because there's a good rewatchables that I'm lucky enough to be a part of. Um, about that movie, but the but the great thing about that movie is um, the talking that Glenn Close and Michael Douglas do before the sex, right? Where the where they set the table for the stakes, um, and then proceed to like have sex on that table. And I really like the talking in that movie. There are things that we're not going to talk about today, like suspect, um, which isn't it. Technically, is not an erotic thriller because she because Cher and Dennis Quaid do not have sex in that movie. But every, so one rule for me, we're talking about like what makes the genre the genre. The, my rule is, my, one of my barometers for whether it qualifies as an erotic thriller is, whether a movie qualifies as an erotic thriller is, is what happens when you remove the sex from this movie? Do you still have one? And the answer should always be no. Like if you remove the intercourse, the actual intercourse from this movie is there anything left? And the answer is no, because the motivations for the characters don't make, they don't, they don't hold anymore. You're not, you're not looking for anybody to kill. You're missing a whole 40 minutes of movie built around either the pursuit, the doing of, or the implications of having done sex. And so a movie like Suspect, which is really Cher representing homeless Liam Neeson for the murder of a woman that's too complicated to go into, but in the on her jury is Dennis Quaid, who for reasons we don't understand is both attracted to her. That's not a mystery; it's Cher, but is attracted to Cher, lawyer Cher, but also is helping her solve the solve the murder mystery. And she keeps saying, "Dude, give me a break here. You're going to get me disbarred. You can't fucking help me. Do you not know how this works?" And he keeps doing it. And what you realize, you're meant to think that Dennis Quaid's the murderer. But he's just so into share that he he can't help himself. He has to keep trying to solve this murder because it's like an insult to her luring, by the way. <laughs> but but the, my point is, it, it 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 it's not technically an erotic filler. But but if you take Dennis Quaid, if you just make him a regular juror, like any of the other black people, they're all black people on the jury except for Dennis Quaid. I think there's one. There's like a Filipina and like eight black people in Dennis Quaid. Um, and 
if you take him out or you make him just a regular juror, there's no movie. And the, his entire motivation for helping her is not that he's the killer. It's that he he wants her. That's it. I was just gonna. I was just gonna <laughs> add that one more way. It it can't be an erotic thriller if anyone says at any point you're gonna get me disbarred. This isn't how things work. Oh, or oh, please stop one. being. Please stop. Like if anyone is practical and is like we actually can't have sex because that's gonna have some long term problems. It's not an erotic thriller. But but interestingly about Suspect, which is by the way for anybody who hasn't seen it, is came out in 1987. Parentheses. Cher had. Her 1987 is as good as, as almost anybody's year. Sydney Poitier's 1967 and Cher's 1987 are, I mean, maybe Julia Roberts had one of these years. I got to figure out which year that would be for her. But Cher had Moonstruck, Suspect, The Witches of Eastwick, and her comeback album all happened in that year. Who had a better 1980s? Who had a better year than, than Cher's 1987? That's a whole. That's a whole other idea for a podcast that I. We, I don't want to spoil that. Um, I would say that the the thing about Sharon that movie is she she does say to him at some point, Amanda, look, you're going to get me disbarred, and and um, John Mahoney, who's the judge in the case, you guys got to see this movie. It's ridiculous. of course he is. That's pre- he's that's perfect. <laughs> judge John Mahoney is like, I can see you guys talking to each other in the library. What is going on? You are so unprofessional, woman. But it does not. It does not stop her from like. At some point, he gets stabbed and winds up in her apartment. You know what happens. At some point, he just won't leave her alone, and so she he she she succumbs to him. I guess we have to go. Ah. Um, she <laughs> she she gives in to Dennis Quaid, and so it kind of counts as an erotic thriller. It just I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna die on the hill to to argue that it is one. It just doesn't have the nerve. To, to have the sex. That's the only thing missing from that movie. So we're going to do a top 10. We're gonna, the top 10 is going to s- roam from 1980 through about 2005. And mm. that, that is kind of the, the heartbeat. I would say 83 through 95 is really like the, the core time, but there are some outliers that we wanted to hit on. I guess before we get into the movies themselves, you know, this genre really effectively did die. I mean, they really, they still make the Blank from Hell movie, but they don't make the erotic thriller. I think there's probably a few reasons for that. If you guys have some thoughts about why, I'd be curious too. I I think obviously middle ground dramas is just not really a genre anymore. And the only reason to make them is because um, award season typically rewards them, which then helps drive box office and anything that doesn't really fit into that realm kind of struggles to get made. Um, in addition to that, I think we are like a more prude society. And I think I, in part because of social media and because of the exposure that it has given a lot of famous people, there just seems to be less interest in doing the kinds of things on screen that you needed to do to make these movies successful. What do you, mm-hmm. I, do you think that's right, Amanda? I mean, I do think that's right. I think we just we're in in polls now. We are both there's a lot of extremely widely accessible sexual content available to anyone by the internet if they want to seek that out. But it we do expect that it stays hidden. And there's kind of what you do in public and and what you do in private private, which I d- I do think is certainly more conservative. But it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just how we process it and where we think it is like quote appropriate. Um, yeah, that seems right to me. I also think it's important that these movies, that the, 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 the watershed of these movies happened during the AIDS crisis. And 
while people were dying of sex, people were dying of sex. And there was a real, there was a, I mean, the movies are panicked. This genre of movie is slightly panicked about sex. Maybe not between the participants, but the, but the way that these movies are always set in spaces that require people to do self-interrogation or to explain their behavior or justify it, whether it's a psychiatrist's office, a courtroom, or you know some interrogation room because you're watching a police procedural, there's some degree to which you know the the Alfred Hitchcock is 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 rearing his head in the AIDS era, where people who want sex and enjoy sex have to die because because they love it so much, um, which is a sort of grim place to 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 go. But I mean, there's no way to divorce this genre and its popularity from what was happening on this planet, you know, in a real crisis-oriented way for 20 years, 25 years. And well, maybe not that long, but like almost like almost 20 years basically. We were we were super duper terrified of of sex in a way that going to watch movies about people who weren't scared of having sex, um, but where there were repercussions for some of the sex being had. But this is just in this one genre, by the way. I mean, in the 80s, all movies had sex. <laughs> like Sally Field was having sex in movies. You know, that's how pervasive sex was. Um, and so I don't know. I feel like I feel like it on the one hand, you did have this sort of societal crisis. But you also had this moral and cultural situation where, I mean, you said this earlier, Sean, but like there was this this real determination not to give in to to like Nancy Reagan and you know Tipper Gore and the 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 culture of of you know artistic conservatism that was driving so much of our of our politics in relation to our culture at that during that period. The other thing that happened, I think, in addition to a generation of people being chilled on the idea of of uh, casual sex is places like Cinemax started making their own bad versions of these movies and they became Shannon very Tweed. dominant. Yeah, Shout Shannon, Shannon Tweed, Tweed and 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 uh, is it Shannon Weary as well? Like there were there was oh, a yeah. sort of like a generation of stars who were basically just making softcore and softcore became the new version of this. And the move, the sort of mainstream movies got a slightly more. They tighten their belt a little bit. You could find those movies on Cinemax before internet porn, as Amanda points out, was more widely available. Now there's this like massive diversion between what's what's private and what's public. The private is very illicit. The public is very safe, unless you're like Kim Kardashian, in which case the human body is like more of an art piece than it is an object of like sexual fetishization. Right, right, right. But even there, like the sex scenes that we have now, we had to go through the whole phase of like, of deconstructing the sex scene and showing the reality versus like this, like slick kind of choreographed, possibly vaguely unrealistic though. I'm not, you know, if, if you're having sex, like the movies we're about to discuss and as long as it's safe and consensual and no one's dying, that's great for you. But you know, I think we just, we had to do all these things where watch all these movies with like awkward people having sex. And it, it was a real bummer because 
that happened like in my 20s. And then everyone was like, what we now consider a sex scene is like a bunch of people in Brooklyn, like fumbling with the lights on. Just like, this is not what anybody wants in real life or in the movies. But the movies did seem to go through that like moment of convulsion and trying to deal with the, the myth versus the reality of what we see on screen, which I guess for a generation, that's what they wanted. I don't know. I kind of missed the other way. So the, the genre theoretically is coming back later this year. Amanda and I have talked about it a couple of times already. One of our most anticipated movies of the year is called Deep Water. And it is the return of Adrian Lyne, who has not made a movie in well over a decade. And this movie, did you, did, Wesley, did you not know this was happening? I did not know this. Oh my God, so Wesley, the, can I tell you who's in it? Yes. It's Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas. <gasps> yes! <laughs> That's why they're dating. They filmed and then they got together. Oh my God. I know. So this is why we wanted to do this in many ways because theoretically, there's going to be a boom in in movies like this if this turns out well. Now... Oh my God. I I can't... But but you guys, who who wrote the script for one thing? Do we know? Do we have a writer? That's A. And then B... There is something important to remember about Adrian Lyne. And I don't want to pl- I don't want to play this card, but what is he like 80 Adrian Lyne? Adrian Lyne is is 79 years old. Yeah. Um this film has two writers, one of whom is Zach Helm, whose work I'm not super familiar with. The other is very notable. It's Sam Levinson, creator of Euphoria. Okay. Okay. So, oh, wow. okay. I suspect that this will be a highly charged film. Okay. Um and if it but comes only, back and if great, they, they have to, they have to do it. They really, they gotta, you gotta, they gotta, gotta go I mean, for it. You gotta go for it. I mean, and you don't really even have to go for it. Really. If you think about it, like if you watch the sex that Willem Dafoe is having with Julianne Moore in body of evidence, that is, that is just a sex scene that's there to prove that Willem Dafoe will really, you know, he's not a bad husband. He's still in love and enjoys having sex with his wife who enjoys having the sex with him. And it is not some like throwaway sex seat. It is like they're doing it. And she is really having a good time that Julianne Moore. So let me I'm tell just, you something. Really enjoy that scene. Huge fan of Julianne Moore. Right. <laughs> I, I I like a scene. I like that kind of sex where, I mean, in a movie like Body of Evidence, it's there to make a point about, about his, his fealty to his family. Um, but there's a breakfast scene that would have done that just well, just, just fine, right? Like, but no. The thing that's going to make us believe that Madonna is really that sexually powerful is that we need to see him loving having sex with Julianne Moore first. Um, I think that that kind of sex in movie, I mean, this this Adrian Lyne movie with Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas, like they they have to just go for it. You and you can't you can't put any pressure on yourself. You just got to like the thing about Madonna and Willem Dafoe in Body of Evidence is they look like they were really that just looked like. Easy peasy, you know, is it is it Thursday? I can't believe I get paid to do this sex. I don't know. I feel like, it, are those two people in this new Adrian Lyne movie going to go there? <laughs> because I can, is, spot, I can spot two people who are the wrong sexual orientation making out a mile away. I'm, this is, you know, I, it's the thing that ruins all sex now is that you can just tell who's really into it and who's not. And nobody's like a lot of people aren't good enough actors to fake that, which is the great thing also about this genre 
there's nobody, nobody appears to be faking anything. Like everybody's most, in most cases, they seem to enjoy, I believe the sex that I'm watching people simulate. What percentage of co-stars in erotic thrillers do you think actually had sex? You don't have to say who, just what percentage? Mm. See, I'm naive about this sort of thing. Uh, I know very little about the, 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 the meat that goes into the sausage casing. Okay. Um, All right. It's quite West a metaphor. Jesus. Yay! <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a good one. I would say I'd say somewhere between 45 and 50%. What do you think, Amanda? I think I'm also naive like Wesley. So I would say 50%. Okay. We'll agree on 50%, which is a lot. That's a lot of That's famous a lot. fucking. That's a lot. I don't know, but you know, a lot of people who aren't in erotic thrillers but do a movie together get wrapped up in it and then wind up having sex. It's an intimate experience. Wrapped up in it. Wah. Um, <laughs> okay. okay. Let's go to our top 10. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from Bill Simmons. Hi, Bill. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You can do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, two times. And if you're completely insane, three times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature that's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you, but the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. Okay, we're back in the big picture. We're ready to share our top tens. You know, we've talked about Fatal Attraction a little bit already. The way that we've broken this down is we've each chosen three films, and then we all agreed that Fatal Attraction had to be on our list. Wesley has already appeared on the rewatchables about that movie. I would encourage you to check it out. We don't need to spend too much time unpacking it, but otherwise we're going to go in chronological order here. Amanda has the first pick due to chronology. Amanda, what'd you go with? I went with body heat, which we have talked a little bit about already on this podcast. And it, it's just the first thing that came to my head because it really, to me is the quintessential, Oh, they're just going to show a sex scene for a while movie. So obviously Body Heat is 1981, written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, starring William Hurt and Kathleen Turner. And William Hurt and Kathleen Turner uh, just really, really, really have a lot of sex. And this movie, <laughs> I mean, I mean, they do. It is. It is. It is a remake of Double Indemnity and or not a remake, but kind of really heavily leans on Double Indemnity, except they added in all the implied sex scenes. And I get a kick out of that. I do remember watching. I remember the moment when I realized that like 
old movies were implying sex. And I, it took me longer probably than it should have <laughs> as a young person. Like I remember when I realized that, you know, in Casablanca, when Ilsa goes back to Rick's apartment to get the letters and they cut to the, the light tower and you're supposed to understand that they had sex. I don't think I knew that until my 20s, but it's OK because I know now and I hope that they had a lovely time. When did you but, figure out Hitchcock's fireworks? I know. I listen, I'm like not a very smart movie watcher. I just kind of like, oh, it's on the screen. Okay. That's that's what's happening, which is I think why I like this genre because I'm like, oh, they're having sex. I get it now. <laughs> but this to me is the quintessential, yeah, just the implied sex is the quite literal sex. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's great. It's like a it's a very it's a very um interesting feature debut for a for a writer-director. You know, Kasdan had written a Star Wars movie and had been a screenwriter. But for this to be his... Like, he'd never really made another movie even close to this. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it just seems like more of a genre exercise in the context of his filmography now. But the first time that this happened, when this movie came out in 81, you must have been like, wow, we have like the new sexy filmmaker of our time. And if you ever see an interview with Lawrence Kasdan, you might be confounded by that idea. (laughs) But um, he really does. Like, he he really makes it work. I really like this movie. And it basically introduces two major movie stars of their era who are now totally forgotten. Like William Hurt and Kathleen Turner just don't even have, I feel like a public reputation, but they are so beautiful. Kathleen Turner, you know, she means something to gay people still. I mean, she, not that she doesn't mean it. Well, I mean, for one thing, she's in Provincetown all the time. So she's basically, you know, she and John Waters are just, they, they're the, the mayor and mayor of Provincetown. Um, I mean, with all due respect to the actual mayor of Provincetown, if Provincetown <laughs> does have a mayor. Uh, but, you know, she does, she, I think she means something to a lot of people. She just doesn't work as much, right? She doesn't, she's really, I mean, I've seen her on stage a couple times in the last, you know, 10 years, and she's wonderful on stage too. Um, she's a really good stage actor. This movie, you know, I think that there's something I don't this is one of those movies that I don't believe it feels a little I think I said this before it feels it feels like an impersonation um it feels like somebody just turned 18 or it feels like somebody you know just got their driver's license and they're yeah, just Yeah all gonna, of us me when I just, saw yes, Kathleen yes, Turner exactly. naked I was like I'm legal now <laughs> Well I think that's how Lawrence Kasdan is too What you mean what Sure I can hire some actors and make them take their clothes off <laughs> Couldn't do couldn't do this on on Empire Strikes Back or whichever one I whichever one I wrote. That's um, the one. I I uh, let's go for it. But the thing that makes the movie there are two things that make the movie there. There's a kind of um, and this you just you just had it because this is how movies used to be made. There's a kind of on the spot realism that comes out of the chemistry of the actors in the space. So all the scenes that are set in the diner I think are really great. I think that his when he picks her up on that Great boardwalk, uh, that so good. is one of the best pickups of anybody in any work of fiction I've ever read, watched or read. And part of what's so good about it is it is completely hormonally driven. But he, she can, how do I put this? She catches everything, every pitch that that she throws, he catches. And, or is it, I don't know which, I don't know who's the pitcher and who's the catcher in this metaphor. Yay! Um, <laughs> but 
they're they're in sync with each other in a way that she there's a version of this where Barbara Stanwyck, if 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 Fred McMurray were a loose like creep, um, she'd slap him. You know, in in this version of the way William Hurt is going after Kathleen Turner, but in this one, there's just I just believe it. He knows he's going to get her, and she wants she wants him to keep trying because she wants him she wants to be got, and. I'm not thinking about the the murder plot at this point. I'm thinking about two people who were looking for a way to get in one of their beds. Um, and that's just that is just exciting. Now, the rest of the movie, as far as I'm concerned, go, jumps out like goes off a cliff at that point. Um, you know, I, I do like them as as a relationship, as a sexual relationship. I do too. You're in it for the bodies and you're in it for the heat. That's really why the movie works. It's it's an it's an okay noir with some really great movie star stuff going on um my pick number two is body double the aforementioned brian de palma masterpiece Ooh, one of the most twi- one of the most twisted mainstream movies ever released uh it is like so many brian de palma movies hugely influenced by alfred hitchcock it's like if alfred hitchcock just whipped it out um it's <laughs> kind, kind, very strange like movie it is it, it literally well is well uh, done it stars Craig Wasson, uh, a fil- an actor who like really went on to do very little after this movie, even though he's at the center of one of the more famous movies in this genre. Is it because he can't act, Sean? He's not a good actor. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to defend Craig Wasson. It's he's way in way over his head. And there are a lot of actually very good actors in this movie. Um, Greg Henry's great as kind of like the over-the-top villain. And Melanie Griffith gives um, what I would describe as a very meaningful performance to me. Uh, it's about a, a young actor who kind of loses his way and is struggling with some version of claustrophobia or stage fright and uh, encounters another aspiring actor and finds himself ensnared in a complicated plot uh, about a woman who lives acro- across from the, the giant home that he is house sitting. That home uh-huh. is called the Chemosphere. It's a very memorable architectural landmark in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, it's a movie about watching other people and pursuing things you shouldn't pursue. It's very sexy and also very kind of odd and and strange and gross. And it has a very unusual pace to it. Um, mm-hmm. It really works in three distinct acts and you never really know what's going on, even though it's incredibly obvious what's going on in terms of where the story is headed. But at one point, the movie just turns into a... Um, Frankie goes to Hollywood video. And that's like yeah. one of the most exciting, one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in a movie. It, it, like it, <laughs> it, it, a movie, the movie just turns into a music video and then just turns into a porno. And if you, if you like boogie nights, you can imagine how many times Paul Thomas Anderson watched body double to prepare for boogie nights. Cause there's so much of it in just that small section of the movie. I really like it. I'm like, I'm a big De Palma fan while acknowledging that I think half of his movies don't work. This is one that I really, really love. I mean, one thing about Body Double that's important to mention is that, you know, in, in I never really like this kind of casting for a person who also has a fetish, like who has many fetishes, but like De Palma's Hitchcock fetish invariably leads him to cast Tippi Hedren's daughter in, in you know, in what I would say is a star-making, she has a star-making moment in this movie. Um and, you know, I think it's ingenious in some ways, and I think it's kind of like, well, no, it's purely ingenious, but it risks making me uncomfortable. But anyway, Griffith's character, her name is Holly Body, um, which we should, I mean, I just feel like that's that's worth mentioning here. 
And the, I mean, I don't know if we just want to pay, play a clip of the contract negotiation seed or like whether it's okay. worth just reciting because it it is such a, I mean, I'm shocked that in college we never watched this for any of our, you know, feminist cinema. I mean, you really have to have a person who understands what, what is happening in a scene like that. And it's easy and I wouldn't fault anybody for discounting who the agents are in the in in who the authors are and the agents are in the creation of this scene, but she totally owns it. And the character is basically stipulating the kind of sex she will and will not be having. And it's just, it's just an amazing scene. And Melanie Griffith, who I don't know. I I I have always believed in Melanie Griffith. I did a really good Melanie Griffith impersonation when I was in <laughs> when I was in middle school. Um, she wasn't from this one of my, film. Um, just in general, I could do a Melanie Griffith like ordering an omelet at a diner if I wanted to. Um, <laughs> but there's, you know, she just there's something about her. She's a surprise. Everything about her, she is cast to surprise you, not with the plot, but with the things that come out of her mouth and for how smart she doesn't sound, but always is in movies. Um. It's just she's she's one of my favorite. She is one of my favorite stars. Period. Um, mostly for what, for just how little sense she so often makes um, in being cast. And the, the best example of that is Shining Through, which I won't. If you've never seen Shining Through, just rent Michael Douglas and Melanie Griffith in Shining Through. I'm not even going to tell you what it's about, but it is the most ridiculous movie maybe ever made. Uh, notable too that her daughter is Dakota Johnson, is Dakota the star Johnson. of the Fifty Shades of Grey franchise, of Grey. creating three consecutive generations of beautiful, desired film actresses. Uh, Amanda, I think this was the first time you saw Body Double, right? Yes, it was, and this was the Speak. first movie that my husband chose to watch. He was like, "Okay, the project starts with Body Double," <laughs> which was just a tremendous flex by him. I had an interesting reaction to this. You know, I was thinking like. The danger in these movies is interesting because usually for the most part, the danger, I mean, is obviously sex, but then is also someone else who uh, has some sort of mental issue. But the danger is other. Right. And in this particular case, by the way, the danger, the person's the sex is dangerous, but then the person who is dangerous is dangerous almost because of sex. Yes, but it's but it's all outside danger you're getting entangled in yes, something else yes, yes, and the danger yes. in this one is that this person is a creep the danger is really ultimately uh, extremely it is located in the protagonist which is like interesting i found it a little bit harder to not judge this person i mean and these movies do all ask you maybe they, i mean they do ask you to judge the various characters and whether you do or not is depending on what kind of experience you want to have. But there are there are embedded morals. And like this is, if you go down this road, then you're going to pay the consequences. And for some reason, I don't, I, I enjoy yelling, like, why are you doing this at most people in these movies? Even as they're just like making really stupid decisions, it's part of the fun. And then this one, I was just kind of like, oh, this is pretty creepy. But that has value, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, it definitely mm-hmm, got a reaction yeah. out of me. It is a very um, vivid, unsettling, creepy, kind of weird movie. And is also just to the extent that 
being obsessed with movies and seeing yourself in movies and all of this stuff and everything we do here is like a masturbatory endeavor. Like this really sums it up quite nicely. There we go. Yeah. Well, that's a little, that's a little on the nose, right? Like that, that is the lighthouse in a movie we're not going to talk about called fatal final analysis. Have you guys seen that one? I did. I rewatched it for this podcast. That is Richard Gere. That to me feels like an all get out, get out. They're all going to burn. You're all going to burn. It, anyway, sorry. There's a shot of a lighthouse at some point. That- yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for fans of the film, The Lighthouse, if you're confused, the lighthouse represents a giant male phallus. So just, you know, these are, these, these are, these are important things to know. So Wesley, you chose Jagged Edge, which you mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation. I, before you t- explain why, I just want to give you quickly the context under which I saw Jagged Edge. Mm. I took a class in high school, an elective class called, um, I believe it was called Law in the Courtroom. And the class was built to appear to be a courtroom with a jury bench and a, a, a sort of the approaching the judge's bench and Where'd you gallery. Go? Public high school, Waltman High School on Long Island. But for whatever reason, they kitted out this room. And my teacher was a lovely man whose name I forget, but who was very lazy and showed us a lot of films. And he showed us Jagged Edge in full over two classes, which is not appropriate. I just need wow. to say that right now. I was 15 years old. Yes, Amanda. Can I just say, actually, I do think it's appropriate because I'd never seen this movie and I loved it. I can't wait to talk about it with you, Wesley, but it does not have a lot of sex. That's true, but... There's one scene, one key scene, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so why, why did you choose this, Wesley? Well, I kind of misunderstood the rules for what we were doing today. No, no, this <laughs> is a, this, this qualifies. I just I just got some uh I just I just got some things that I thought were were essential to the understanding of how the genre works, right? The reason I chose Jagged Edge was because it because after Fatal Attraction I saw Glenn Close. I mean, I, I after Fatal Attraction I I just knew that Glenn Close was my favorite actor. And um I immediately went to our Errol's video and rented a copy of Jagged Edge and was just so taken by how poised this woman who just makes one bad choice after another. That's the thing about these movies. And I just want to make a distinction between a film noir and maybe um, a blank from hell movie. Like they can all have a little bit, you know, an erotic thriller can be a little bit of both those things. But the thing that that makes an erotic thriller an erotic thriller to me is somebody did something wrong and has to pay. And the thing that they did wrong is entirely around having slept with somebody. Like who, what rule did you break? Whether it was the vows of your marriage, you know, whatever, you're not the, what's, what's the legal Hippocratic oath? Whatever that is, um, or you know, are you of a, a, a cop who shouldn't be sleeping with a suspect? Somebody has to pay for the attraction. Um, that's how. That's to me how erotic thrillers. That's an engine of the erotic thriller. Is somebody being paid, being made to pay for lust? And Jagged Edge is a great one because this is a woman who only because the genre dictates it sleeps with Jeff Bridges. Now he is looking good. He he is he is outrageously handsome. There are some people, oh my God, young Jeff Bridges. I mean we can talk about old Jeff Bridges too, but oh my God, young Jeff Bridges. I was astonished. I had not seen this movie. And I just he the grooming, 
the wardrobe. I have to tell you, his home is one of the great homes. And we need to talk more about real estate as it plays into this oh, genre. It's 100% at some point. important. Um, the horses. Oh, yeah. I, All these I, movies I was, have animals, by the way. There's a, there are two, they're like two sub things in these movies that are important to note. The presence of black people and what black people do in these movies, like they, they almost all, and they're not all racist, although some of them are about racism in a weird way, but some of them, all detectives, right. There's some of them are so many detectives, judges, Judges, detectives, homeless people. Suspect is the realest DC movie I have ever seen. It goes to all of the places that make Washington DC, Washington DC and knows what exactly all the problems are. It's a terrible movie, but yet whoever whoever wrote it uh, really understands. I think I think Eric did did Eric Roth write that? I want to say Eric Roth wrote Suspect. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Jagged Edge is just an absurd movie. You know, you know almost instantly because none of the red herrings are really that persuasive who did it. But you also don't blame. This is the other thing about the genre. Do, do you understand why the person who had the wrong sex had the wrong sex? And in every case in all of these movies where that is applicable, it is 100% relatable. Who would not have had sex with Jeff Bridges? Like, if I'm, if I'm Jeff Bridges' lawyer and I think he might have killed his wife, and I know that, like, I shouldn't have sex with this person because he he might have probably done it. And I'm his lawyer, and he his wife has been dead for ten minutes. But but he's Jeff Bridges, and he look he's looking so good. He looks like Randy Orton with all of Randy Orton's kinks straight straightened out. Like that's that's Jeff Bridges in this movie. Incredible comp. I've said before that George Clooney is my hair icon, but Jeff Bridges in this movie is like has my haircut. I like I, my mom when I was five must have just taught me that that's how you should wear your hair because it's uh, to, to, like right now it is replicating. Maybe that's not a good look for a 25 year old haircut, but nevertheless, um, I mean, did you like you like Jagged Edge? You were you were switched on by Bridges. Yes, I I really, really did understand the impulse of wanting to sleep with Jeff Bridges, though I will say I was kind of mad at Glenn Close's character because she decides to sleep with him very quickly. It mm-hmm. is really just mm-hmm. like they have mm-hmm. one meeting and then they ride horses. And I do understand the particular appeal of horses in this scenario. I'm just saying it happens very quickly. I didn't really get a lot of foreplay, even for the context of this genre, which doesn't usually do a ton of foreplay. That's okay. And then they just, their covert skills are terrible. They're like when they're sitting in the courtroom, just like making eyes at each other. And I'm just like, there is a courtroom full of people here who are picking, going to pick up on what's going on. It was, I don't understand how they got away with it. And, and that's part of what I like about it. There is a preposterousness to all of these movies of like this, this doesn't make sense. And you're yelling at the screen, but I was yelling at this screen for them to just like tone it down in court just a little. <laughs> Wait till you see Dennis Quaid and Cher and suspect. You're just like, are you guys fucking kidding me right now? If people came in here, not owning stock and suspect, they, they are going to be sadly <laughs> disappointed when they learn that that is the most beloved movie on this podcast, even though it's not on our list. So that's number three, jagged edge. Number four is fatal attraction, which we've talked about al- already. Number five is my pick, Sea of Love, 1989, which I wonder if you think that this is actually an erotic thriller. I don't know if both of you guys had a chance to revisit it. Very interesting movie, a little bit more high class than some of the other movies on this list. Uh, 
directed by Harold Becker, written by the great New York writer Richard Price, who, if you watched The Outsider earlier this year, that's his work. He's written uh, on The Wire and a lot of other television shows, and he's obviously a hugely accomplished novelist. One of our great novelists. One of the great novelists. Um, this is a pretty early uh, Hollywood gig for him, and a very slick kind of neo-noir movie that features a really... It's the first stages of weird, over-the-top Pacino to me. Um, that sort of in that Wait, mid-80s. Wait, this is after Scarface. Yeah, that's true. But like this, that performance had to be over the top, and this one doesn't have to be. Oh, you mean it's where still, it's just like a like it's Tuesday, and he's who he's Uad. Yeah, he's just like yeah, you know yeah. when it's the wet ass hour, you know, like the weird shit yeah. that he's saying in this movie. Um, and Ellen Barkin, who is uh, Jesus Christ, in, just incredible, just throwing a hundred and seven miles an hour in this movie. Who do we know the story? I mean, she's probably told. Um, she had a really great. Uh, she had a great Koppelman podcast episode. Mm. Um, where, and I don't remember, I was, there were so many other things that she talked about with Brian Koppelman in that, in that episode that I don't remember if she told the story of how she got into the movies. But how the hell did Ellen Barkin get in the movies? Some, you just like, who was the person who cast her? Like, that person deserves a lot. Because there's a, there's a, there's a version of this where like, she does not, they skip her. Oh, for right sure. Over her. I mean, the reason that I picked this movie is not it is very sexy and it has a pretty good mystery element to it, but it is by far the most New York movie of this kind ever made. And mm, Bar- mm-hmm. Barkin is is pure Bronx. Like she is so many people in yeah. my family are just like her. The way that she talks, the way that she looks, the way that mm-hmm. she styles her hair, her mm-hmm. attitude, her sense mm-hmm. of humor, um, mm-hmm. her very specific the way that her character in this movie looks at the world and looks at her her prey or her partner, depending on how she sees Al Pacino in the movie. Um, and their, their dynamic is just incredible. And mm-hmm. it's not exactly the same like fireworksy, zeitgeisty, basic instinct style movie that a lot of these others are. But um, Because she doesn't represent, cool. yeah, she doesn't represent what Glenn Close represents, right? Which is both like a, a career woman and a threat to the, to the, to the American family a single career woman who represents a threat to the American family. But Ellen Barkin, oh man. You know, the thing about, this is definitely an erotic thriller. I thought about this and I, I understand why you're asking the question because really this is the only one of these movies that I've ever seen that is about men. It's just about male relationships. And this woman enters the picture and I mean, it's all he can talk about to these other dudes, right? I met this girl. There's this woman in my life. She, you know, they set up this stake that, you know, all of his, I mean, th- there's some good, I don't know if this is, Sean, you can speak to this better than, than, than I could, but like, is this a common NYPD tactic? Like I, to set up these- It seems immensely illegal. <laughs> <laughs> to get all these dudes together to say that they're going to meet the Yankees and then surprise you're all under arrest? It's the best. The opening sequence, it's like it's not a sex scene Phil for Amanda's Rizzuto. rules, but it is a different kind of um emotional and physical engagement. Yeah. Anyway, I I I love I, I really the thing that I like about this movie is I like the twist, although Roger Ebert's I don't know, you, you Roger Roger Ebert did not like this movie because of the ending. He said he could justify it, and so can I. Um it's really twisted. You know, speaking of like, speaking of AIDS era paranoia, this is, 
this is this is a deep one, and I'm not going to ruin it, but it's wild. I did not see that. I didn't. I didn't see that. I'm not gonna, even going to just. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. It it also unusually has has an unusual like sweet coda. You know, I feel mm-hmm. like oh, the, that scene is great. The end scene, I don't want to spoil it, but like most of these movies don't end with like, a, oh, man, I love these people, you know, like, yeah. and that is how kind of how you walk out of sea. Of I hope feeling. they make it. I hope they make it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Amanda. Yeah, I, I did want to talk a little bit about that because <laughs> I mean, as you both pointed out, he Pacino does seem to have real affection for this woman he's mm-hmm, taken mm-hmm. with her beyond the just, you know, pure lust way that is so often um, included in these movies. And I don't know whether I, I think it's nice. I, I think it's nice. I like yeah. both those people. I too am rooting for them, but I don't, I don't know whether I, don't I count it. it in. I well, I just, right, yeah. I, I kind of don't think in this genre, one signifier of an erotic thriller for me is that like they can't this is not love i'm sorry and sometimes they say it's love and maybe they even think it's love but it is not love that's not what we're doing here there are other genres for that there are other scenes for that and i maybe that speaks very poorly of me that that's what i expect and want from these movies but i'm not really here for the emotional complications but should we say though that the that the thing about the movie the 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 premise that that you as a moviegoer are led to believe is the is the case is that Ellen Barkin is murdering men that she's having sex with and Al Pacino and John Goodman who plays his partner like young very charismatic privately sexy John Goodman there's a scene where in this. there's a scene where Al Pacino comes home to his apartment to his own apartment and finds John Goodman there cuz he told him he could be and John Goodman is having sex with someone else who's not his wife and John Goodman is wearing this, I don't, is wearing this t-shirt that is two sizes too big for him. And his chest is kind of like hanging out a bit, a little bit. It is, that is not an erotic thriller, but it is just erotic. It's as erotic Goodman. as John Goodman has ever gotten yes. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think that I, I, the idea that Ellen Barkin is murdering men and putting on an old, an old 45 instead of smoking a cigarette is. It's kind of a dumb idea for me. <laughs> but <laughs> the place that it goes and the and the the need that these detectives have to believe that she might be that it might be a woman doing this, they're all convinced it's gotta be a woman, it's gotta be a woman, it's gotta be a woman. Um, and where that takes them and part of the thrill for them, because John Goodman is also sleeping with a suspect. Uh, or no, 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 he's sleeping with a woman. It's gets complicated, but he's sleeping with someone who's involved in the investigation. Um, she's a witness, technically, or per- Possibly. Um, and there's something about the titillation of the of the dangerous sex that is that is driving that movie. I think it counts. I think anything where the premise is that people are being murdered via like 90s personal ads <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah, counts yeah. within the, yes. the yeah. sex is danger erotic thriller. I just ding, ding, you know ding, ding, ding. wanted to make the case against real emotions for whatever reason. I, you know what? I think they kept that. I they kept that ending because it was too good not to keep. I definitely don't think that that ending. It maybe it was even in the script, but I think that movie probably had a different ending. And they saw that play. They saw how they how that scene played 
just not even maybe with an audience, but like it just between two actors and the like the, oh my God, he's so, he's never been more charming than he is in those five minutes. And just, and just how, just the effect that he has on her. Oh my God. I'm getting chills just thinking about how good they are in the last five minutes of that movie. I would have watched Nora Ephron's Sea of Love 2 immediately. It would be an incredible movie. <laughs> set in, in York, just, Pennsylvania. A, yeah, it's just a different type of movie. Uh, let's go to number six. So, Wesley, you picked Basic Instinct. As I said, there's a massive rewatchables about Basic Instinct. Is there anything quickly that you want to say about this immensely important film to this genre? Well, it's the one that sort of takes all of the principles of the genre to the extent that, I mean, Joe Esterhaus wrote it, so he clearly knows the rules. He invented them. And it sort of lays everything out. It is, there is an actual shrink. I mean, it's like it's like a department store erotic thriller. It has got, it's got a murder plot. It's got a psychology wing. There's a legal element. And there's there's omnivorous sexuality that goes in in two directions there is there's a rape there's an actual rape and the reaction the woman Jeannie Triplehorn's reaction to being raped is is one is one for the for the for the psychologists in real life there is the 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 the, the moment where Michael Douglas realizes that she wasn't kidding about using him for a book and then being done with him. Um, like Michael Douglas is giving a performance in this movie. I know Sharon Stone is very good, but but Michael Douglas is giving a performance in this movie. He is someplace that isn't even on the page. He like, she is really breaking his heart. And he really can't believe what is happening to him in this movie. It's just, it is, it is, it is. It might be my one of my, my favorite Michael Douglas movies in a more in a movie that is like kind of queasy and a little reprehensible, but but not but I actually don't think it's reprehensible. I think it's fascinating for the risks that it takes in terms of what it is arguing about human sexuality. And it makes some weird moral choices, but I think it is one of the one of the great attempts to to make to make like somewhat ridiculous sense out of something that is inherently ridiculous about human beings, which is just our desire for each other. It's a strong case. That's a way more sophisticated case than I have, which is uh, everybody just looks really hot in this movie. It's completely (laughs) absurd. It reminds me a lot of listening to Howard Stern in the 90s. I loved Howard Stern in the 90s. And like all good tri-state area New York kids, was kind of fascinated similarly by the same way that he would kind of explore inappropriate subjects in a very approachable way and mm-hmm. you knew that there was something wrong about it, that there was something uncouth, insensitive at times, certainly on the edge of decency. But also, I, I just couldn't turn away. I could. I loved listening to Stern, and I feel very similarly about Basic Instinct, even though I know that there are certain aspects of the movie that are just like super problematic. Like, not, forget like the modern version of what problematic is and how loaded that term is now. It's just there are certain parts of the movie that are just like, what the fuck were they thinking right. when they made this? Well, but that's kind of both the point and the appeal of basic it instinct. It, like it's supposed to be over the top. It is pushing your buttons. We and are like going an, there. Yes. And it's there's 100%. an intentionality to it that like makes it like a little, I don't want to say safer because like it's a ridiculous over the top movie, but you know that there 
they're trying to do that. They are, as Wesley said, going there. And the amazing thing about it is that it is so ridiculous and also everyone's so good at it. And it still is like kind of sexy, which some of the movies that really go over the top at this point in 2020, they're like kind of silly and you're not really drawn into the world as much. And you still very much are with Basic Instinct. Just one more thing about this movie. This also, to me, is the culmination of the sort of straight appropriation of AIDS-era gay paranoia um, sex movies. It is, I mean, just the way bisexuality functions in this movie and the way, like, Roxy and, and Catherine's sex life is both enhanced and, and threatened by the presence of this man. Um, I mean, he is the disease in some way. Um, but then so, so to him is, is Catherine. Um, I mean, the, the degree to which like we're talking about addiction and, and catching a, catching a sort of metaphorical virus, although I'm sort of morally opposed to viruses, metaphors, many people are anyway, I, there's something about this movie that really speaks to that moment. And a lot of the reaction against it when it came out was, I mean, from queer people who were just like, are you, are you fucking kidding? Like people are out here dying. Can we not be dignified in any way for like 30 seconds? Why are we the killers? There's a real killer out there and we, it needs a drug. And if you guys were really concerned about gay people, you'd be out there helping us try to fight for one for, for some treatment. Anyway, I think that this movie both in the film itself and and beyond it was is the sort of apotheosis of of the moment in which these movies were being made and were most popular. And this is the high watermark for the genre, right? I mean, it's the most popular of these movies, and it's the one that maybe it didn't do the craziest stuff, but it it maybe did the third or fifth craziest stuff. I still love it. I even though I have complicated feelings about it. I mean, yeah. you you had you had number seven. What'd you pick? I did. I put single white female into the mix, which uh, I rewatched it yesterday is not a particularly well-made or great film with a capital G, but to me is a very um, memorable. And uh, I I was, I was greatly affected by it when I first saw it. I, it, it is of the from hell genre. And I suppose technically it would be the roommate from hell, but you know, I, I kind of saw it as the, the the woman from from hell in a in a woman to woman relationship it is technically about the re- relationship or our relationship between two women and how obsession can spiral out of control or mental health can spiral out of control as the case may be this is i i guess technically by our definition it's not a pure erotic thriller because there are some sex scenes including one very memorable blowjob but <laughs> They aren't going at it the whole time. They're more like little grace notes of sex, like one person watching the other masturbate or the or the blowjob or just, you know, some nudity because you could do that in the 90s. I think this is also just a peak 90s movie for me. And I really do associate these movies with like the 80s and 90s. They are of their time for their morals and their cultural settings, but also like the look of them and the, the wardrobe and the truly terrible haircut, like the, maybe the worst haircut ever committed to film that Bridget Fonda is wearing at the beginning. And then 
Jennifer Jason Lee copies as part of her obsession. I guess they're like, are they doing like the Linda Evangelista? But, you know, they're not Linda Evangelista. Like, what is that haircut? Well, that's the thing about the haircut is that I was like having rewatched it. Like, I don't know. You don't know. I mean, Tabitha Soren, it's got more body than I mean, Tabitha Soren wasn't going for that haircut. That was just her haircut. Um, it just was a thing. I was like, I was what I was thinking when I was watching it was like, that was a haircut that was supposed to be a thing and it never happened. <laughs> it, it never, it never happened. It's such an interesting movie, too, because a lot a lot of these films fall under this this category of slightly high-minded filmmaker comes into this genre playground and tries to gussy it up a little bit. Like this is Barbe Schroeder who is coming off of Reversal of Fortune and Barfly. And I mean, you know, Barbe Schroeder is Swiss filmmaker guy who um, produced Celine and Julie go boating. You know what I mean? Like he is a very, he's in some respects, a very hallowed international filmmaker, but then he makes this movie and then he makes Kiss of Death and then he makes Before and After. And he just kind of gets mired in this very 90s, like you're describing Amanda, like kind of trashy, kind of slick Hollywood fare. But all of those movies are very watchable. You know, like they're not they're not disasters, but it's so strange that he pivots out of the Oscar glory of Reversal of Fortune into these kinds of movies. I never really understood that. But, you know, like a lot of, you know, seemingly celebrated international Paul Verhoeven is one of the godfathers of this form, too. And he obviously has made some of the most important erotic thrillers ever. So I always find that interesting that like it was kind of a classy genre, even though it was so illicit at the time. The problem with this movie, though, I mean, the person that you care about, I mean, this is, I'm, I am, I, I, you guys have heard me like fall into this trap before, but I, anytime you watch a movie and you are more sort of sympathetic to the alleged villain, and because the genre, because I mean, I don't, I, this is, this is a hundred percent a blank from hell movie that has like erotic thriller flavoring to me. I'm 100% sympathetic to Jennifer Jason Lee's character. Like, Hetty is her, is the character's name, but the performance is the reason that you're on board. I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee, this was in the 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 at the beginning of her great sort of like 10-year stretch where she was great in, in about, you know, 17 movies and bad and only one. Hello, Backdraft. I, I, I see you, Jennifer Jason Lee in Backdraft. Um, but that that was like doing, that was like her paycheck movie. That was like her Amy Adams and Superman moment. I mean, she wasn't Amy Adams. She wasn't the Amy Adams. She was not the Amy Adams of 1991, but I'm I'm just, or 1990, but I'm just saying that um this was a this was a good actor who made weird, interesting choices who wound up in a thing that she was only in because she had a good agent. <laughs> um, but she's so good in this movie, and the movie needs her needs her to die because like people would have been really pissed if she hadn't. Um, and I also watching it again really appreciated how much like how great audience movies this the blank from hell genre is right and like if you've got a little um blank from hell in your erotic thriller it makes your erotic thriller function in a, in a, in a sort of heightened level 
Um, like Sea of Love had this, right? We're like, we don't know what her what the blank from hell even is at this point. Um, but but in single white female, it is just, you know, once the once the puppy goes out the window, and like I think that's 40 minutes in, you're like, wait, there's another hour? What of it just what's, going? What's she gonna do? <laughs> I feel that way in all of these movies. They're all like something insane happens at the hour mark, and then they have a whole rest of movie to make. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This doesn't like I'm there's a way in which this could have been a great erotic thriller if it had turned it needed to turn two corners, right? He, he needed to either the boyfriend needed to either to, to needed to sleep with Jennifer Jason Lee or Bridget Fond needed to sleep with Jennifer Jason Lee. Somebody Jennifer Jason Lee needed to have sex with somebody <laughs> and not herself. Um and without that, I don't, because we don't know, Jennifer Jason Lee's illness is her sexual orientation, unfortunately, in this movie, right? And so we don't know, we don't know, we don't understand the motivation for her behavior beyond this stupid backstory the movie gives you. Um, so I don't know. It doesn't feel, sex isn't motivating anybody to do anything here. No, I agree with that. And it doesn't go far enough, though. It is interesting, like at the, the climactic moment when uh, Bridget Fonda is. Oh, is that's a great up. point. Yep. Yep. And, that's a great and point. And it is actually she she finally kisses Jennifer Jason Lee. And that's what Jennifer Jason Lee, you know, gets her to release her. Now, like that's complicated. But if I'm if, her- I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm like if I'm act up or like, you know, some LGBTQIA yeah, organization, I'm like, oh, come good. on. Oh, yeah, come on. Now, I, now she's gay. She's gay to save it's, her life. It's problematic. It's also a cop out. Like if you're going to do it, why don't we do it? But mm-hmm. I, I guess, I guess also I saw this pr- pretty young. Like it, it was training wheels for me of being like, oh, interesting. So there is this kind of sexual thing lurking in these scenarios that I like maybe wouldn't have picked up on. And it is at least like, you know, there are enough b- bare breasts in this to tip me off that there's something else going on between besides your average like, oh, I just want to be her. Mm-hmm. Um, the other mm-hmm. thing, can we just talk about the apartment? Oh my God. That, that I mean, apartment. the apartment is just Jesus. extraordinary. So it's like, a, she lives on the Upper West Side, the, a New York movie. I think, I want to say it's like near Broadway and 72nd. Does that seem yep. right to you? Uh, I the think building? it's 70. She didn't, I don't know what the cross street was, but it's 70. I think it's 70. It's not 72nd. Is it 72nd? It's in the know, 70s. Just, it's in yeah, the 70s. I just, yeah. it looked near that, that subway station. And it, one of those like old, magnificent Upper West Side buildings with like the towers. And she lives in one of the towers. So they have those, you know, just majestic windows, which are not great for the puppy, but great for everybody else. And, you know, palatial bathroom and a random drawing room. And it's- Is it the Dakota? A, I don't think it's the Dakota. Because I think it's further west. I think it's further towards the Hudson. Okay. You know, that's another thing of I I moved to New York from watching movies like this and being like, oh, I too can have an apartment <laughs> in a in a tower with a a roommate who really makes me uncomfortable. You know, and and it's uh, some of it sort of came true, but the all of these movies. <laughs> oh, Amanda. No, I didn't actually. I didn't. I, I had a studio apartment, but. All of these movies just have like amazing, amazing homes. Oh, like the location is essential. Except the home, for Sea of Love. 
That's the only that's, one in the bunch that does not have great real estate. That's a realistic portrayal of New York yep. real estate. Yep. The the yep. home in your next pick, Wesley, is also incredible. The movie is Body of Evidence, and <laughs> and Madonna's estate on a on a lot a, of incredible a, things in this movie. Um, I don't, you know, we're we're running a little low on time, but I, I Body of Evidence is a it just was quite a journey to revisit that film. Why why did you choose it? Because it's one of the greatest erotic thrillers ever made. Period. It it is not a great movie, but it's a great erotic thriller, and it's the one that comes along at exactly the right moment where it's this 1993. This is after Basic Instinct, and this is at the this is at the moment where Basic Instinct sort of breaks everything wide open, and all of the rules for what these movies can do completely change, and they're a, they're all about murder. But they're all about like how much sex can we? There's more sex in the movie than there is murder, and it just Basic Instinct just changed every. It, it essentially kind of killed the genre. It, be, it led the genre on a road to its death because you couldn't. Basic Instinct is like a secretly smart movie, and it's also not so secretly brilliantly directed, and it also is secretly emotional, right? Um, in terms of the relationships among all these characters. Um, in every subsequent one of these movies that is like trying to drive the car off the cliff to bring in a completely other uh, movie, um, it wants to, these movies start to want to see what they can get away with. And in the writing, it becomes, the movies sort of become like without acknowledging how meta they are, they become these these self analyses right like this is you know final analysis for instance is a movie about um it's an erotic thriller entirely set among mental patients and richard gear so is color of night and, and bruce willis and body of evidence is a courtroom drama in which madonna's body her sexual her sexual prowess is the murder weapon like and sex itself is on trial I mean, you don't get any more farcical and 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 parodic than that. Except the thing about the movie that I think is that makes it incredible is it never gives up on its ridiculousness. It is not content to just be able to say, you know what, y'all, we're gonna spend a grand total of like 15 minutes letting Willem Dafoe and Madonna have sex on a number of occasions. The wax in this candle. It's real wax. The champagne in this bottle is not, it's real champagne. It's not ginger ale. And that tongue that's licking all that, that candle wax and champagne off Willem Dafoe's chest, that is not a stunt tongue. That is Madonna. I like the movie is not content to leave it there. There's this great sequence toward the end. I mean, there's two of them. One involves Julianne Moore and Madonna, and the other involves Aunt Archer and Madonna. Wait, is there? Wait, am I remembering this right? Is there a Julie? Is there another Julianne Moore and Madonna scene, or does Madonna just do the thing she does to Julianne Moore? Anyway, doesn't matter. It's great. This this it has one of the stupidest last thirty minutes of a movie mm-hmm. you're ever gonna see. But it's just <laughs> an, it's just a it's a total dunk on on nobody. <laughs> there's just nobody and you're not it's not dunking on anybody it's just like well 
I got a breakaway. I'm just going to do it. I'm putting, I'm just, I'm, I'm in there. And I love that. I love the speech about, you know, the fucking, you know, that it's, I mean, that is an all time. It's the, it's the best thing Madonna's ever said in front of a movie camera that wasn't in truth or dare. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just really, I respect how, how fearlessly absurd this movie is. And it understands the rules of the genre enough to simultaneously follow them and set them on fire. I, I don't, I don't want to say too much about this movie for fear of um, self-incriminating. It's just, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, the sex scenes are just insane. They're just insane. I, they just it's- melted my brain when I was a kid. And Madonna is just so hot and confident in this movie. And she's I not cannot, good in it. She's just, no, she's it's energy. The acting it's is energy. poor, but she it's, has so much heat though. Yes. You, you yeah. think may she's I good, Amanda? Madonna briefly? May oh, I sure. defend sure. Madonna briefly? I, I don't think at the time that this movie came out that she was good in it. Now, I think there is a sort of meta Madonna being Madonna in this movie quality to the performance that I find very interesting and captivating. But that seemed true in 1993. Like, this was this was her, like, she, she was about to put out one of her very best albums, which is, uh, uh, is Erotica. Bedtime Stories? Oh, Erotica. Erotica. Yeah. And or maybe erotica was out. Erotica was out in '93, and the sex book was out. So this was like the the capstone to Madonna's erotic adventure. And the thing about the sex to me is, it's just the realest. It's the it's some of like Ellen Barkin and Al Pacino, Willem Willem Dafoe and Madonna, and and William Hurt and Kathleen Turner of all the movies that we're talking about of all the movies. Of all the sex I've seen people have, seen people have in movies, in erotic thrillers, these are the three, these are the, this is the three of the best sexes you're going to see, or in the, and in, in maybe Douglas and Glenn Close in, in Fatal Attraction. That would be number four. Um, the look on his face, this is why I think they were really doing it, because- They must have been. His muscles are doing things I don't think you can make an actor's muscles do. I, like it's just it's it's it is, it's truly remarkable what's happening in is, this movie. It is amazing. It is amazing. Okay, anyway, so you you said so, you said something <laughs> that I completely agree with, which is a good segue to my next pick, which is that I think Body of Evidence kind of broke erotic thrillers in a way, and there were some that came after it that were very good and very credible, but they basically became self aware because movies like that were so parodic in their own unintentional way. So I chose Wild Things, which I. Is certainly, it's it's very important, and it is the kind of the late stages. Um, it's not a last gasp by any means. Um, I would probably argue Sean, that Amanda's, it, kind of, um, it is. Well, right? well, I would say Amanda's pick is probably is almost like a post mortem on the them. One, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That's but fair. that's fair. Wild things. Let me just read uh, the the opening lines of a very important review of Wild Things. <laughs> Wild Things is lurid trash with a plot so twisted they're still explaining it during the closing titles. It's like a three way collision between a soft core sex film, a soap opera, and a B grade noir. I liked it. That's Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. It with the with a dollop of this movie's really funny. And it's really ridiculous. And it has similarly like a weird relationship to um, all of the things that all these other movies don't handle very well. Like it centers on a a false accusation of rape and it fo- focuses heavily on a lot of performers who are not 
um, good enough to be in a movie of this caliber. Uh, Denise Richards, <laughs> you can imagine how I felt about Denise Richards when I was 15. She's very appealing, but she can't act. And it's what interesting to watch her in this environment. What else is she supposed to be doing besides what she's doing? Again, I, in defense of Madonna, <laughs> in defense of Denise Richards, they were sent to play a part and they played it. Well, it, it, and and they're in a similar situation too, where there are a lot of great actors in Body of Evidence and like Julianne Moore and like Willem Dafoe. And there are a lot of great actors in in Wild Things as well. Kevin Bacon and, and Nev Campbell kind of in that very specific moment of, of Nev Campbell's power. And Matt Dillon, of course, who is a fascinating person who we also much like William Hurt and Kathleen Turner, we don't talk about very much anymore. The movie has like an incredible scene stealing comedy turn from Bill Murray in the middle of it that is like some simultaneously out of place, but also perfect. Um, mm-hmm. takes place in a wealthy enclave in, in, is it Florida or Louisiana? I can't, I can't actually tell. I can't I mean, it's, remember. I but, thought it was Florida, but just cause of, I don't know, the gator. I rewatched this like a month and a half ago and now I can't remember where exactly it's set. You know, the plot is, is immaterial. It's the all time confusing backstabbing. Every single character is turning on every single character, but it's got an, an just an amazing energy to it and a propulsiveness. And it's very funny. And the sex scenes are very hot and it's just, it's similarly absurdist. It's, it's like one big joke, but also everybody is trying really hard to look super hot the whole time. And in that respect, I love it. And it, it, I, is it too strong to say this is a movie that changed my life? I mean, it's your life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, any, uh, we should, we should probably go to number 10. Amanda, Wait, you want to say, say something? about like, what do you, what do you want to say? What do you want to say? Let, I remember watching this movie and hating it. Like just really being like, this is terrible. This is so bad. And I wonder, because Ebert doesn't do this in his review, but if I were, if I were, I might've written about this when it, this is 98. Um, I wrote about it. What my, my very first adult job. Um, you'll never find it. So don't bother trying. Although somebody did just give me a tranche of stuff. So I'll see if I can find it in there. It was very, it was a little capsule, but I remember like not liking it, not liking it, not liking it. If I were reviewing it, I just would have walked you through the terrible first half of the movie. And then this thing happens and you're like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Mulholland Drive in a way, right? You think you're watching one movie and then all of a sudden you have to rethink everything that you've been previously watching because you didn't realize that smart people were responsible for this. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can we rewind this and start over please? Because this, this, this pair of boobies just grew a brain. <laughs> I, I can't believe this. This is, this is real. I'm on a, I'm on a roller coaster now. And, um, I love movies that give me that where I have to reevaluate everything about what I've been watching in one moment, you know? Like, and you have to, you have to, as a filmmaker, be so sure that you've got the goods to be as bad as that movie is for like 45 minutes to turn it around in a couple of scenes. And it's like, once it's dawning, I didn't see this movie with an audience and I really wish I had, but once it is dawning on people in the audience that what is happening is happening, I would have paid a million dollars to be at the Court Street Movie Theater to hear people... (laughs) Like clapping and cheering as this shitty movie starts wiping its ass. It's just, it, it's just, 
oh my god, it's such a pleasure. It is such a pleasure. I can if confirm you don't know what's it was happening. So fun in a theater. So yeah. so fun when you see what the what the machinations of the plot kind of grind into place. Any 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 thoughts, Amanda, that you want to share? This is a very vivid high school moment in time for me. I mean, this is like when I think of MTV and all of us watching these types of movies. It's definitely wild things. And I, you know, I remember everyone just being very fixated on the Nev Campbell, Denise Richards moment. That was Mm. if you were in Mm -hmm. high school and that was the first time you were seeing that or being made aware of that. Um, And maybe not catching the fact that this movie is just making fun of itself for the last hour. I mean, mm-hmm. the plot is also impossible to follow. So I think <laughs> there's both a realization that people are in on it. And then also you have no idea what's going on. And you can just you can just watch it for fun to be along for the ride. But yes, I think this and then I, Cruel Intentions, which I think came out a year later and was very important for me personally in the same the genre and moment in time of 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 teens who are having a lot of sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. be a great double feature probably was a double feature at some point yeah, when i was 16 was. yeah um let's do the last one okay. what's the last one amanda number 10 the last one is unfaithful also directed by adrian line this is the one for me this is really important really? and yeah and i'll tell you why because i know it's it's kind of a bummer i rewatched it again last night and it was just like very grateful that my husband has not to my knowledge ever killed anyone um, lovers or otherwise. I mean, I was just like, cause, I mean, because it really does become sort of a bummer at the end. But um, this sex scenes in this movie uh, between Diane Lane and Olivier Martinez are, 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 are what I think about in this genre. I, they had a really profound effect on me as a young person. And I think part of the reason that is pretty obvious, which is like, this is a movie that is, that really, focuses on Diane Lane enjoying herself like and like a woman actually really wanting the sex thinking a lot about the sex and being really driven by it but also enjoying it and there is that very important scene which is like kind of shown in flashback and she's on the train remembering what Mm -hmm. just happened and then it's cut in with with the sex scene and you see her shaking and then you see her you know yelling at him and it is maybe not as explicit as some of the other scenes that we've talked about in terms of like actual nudity or length, but in terms of understanding of what's going on between two people, I it's is quite effective for me. I feel really bad for Richard Gere. Like <laughs> I do too. nobody, I mean, all the great sex that's happened in movies is it tends to happen against Richard Gere. And all the bad sex that happens tends to involve Richard Gere. Mm-hmm. Um, Summersby, I'm looking at you. <laughs> um, but the, pro- the, the ugh, this movie, I have, I have complicated feelings about Unfaithful because that great scene on the train should just be Diane Lane remembering the thing we just watched her do. Like, I don't need to, I don't, like, I rewatched it and it's not as annoying as it originally was when I first saw it. But I was like, why don't we, she's so good in this scene right now. We don't need to see her reaction on the train intercut with the sex that we just watched her have. I can, I know what she's thinking about. I just, I, I politely disagree. I, I, 
18-year-old Amanda really needed to see that, Wesley. <laughs> and I'm really glad that I did. And I'm going to say it's not just me. That, that scene and and even the flashbacks are like a touch point for women of a certain age. Oh, because no. Had, it's a famous, it's a famous like sequence that. now. It's a yeah. famous it's a famous movie sequence now. It is it is I'd love to hear the editor talk about the choice to do it the way that the editor did it. But it's it is edited, now, it, it's edited by Ann Coates. Oh, Ann Coates, edited Lawrence of Arabia, oh, like the know, one of the of greatest course, editors yeah. of all time. I'm so stupid. Yeah. So I that's why I rewatched it actually cuz I wrote uh I wrote a thing about her when after she died. And the the conclusion that I came to was that it doesn't really under cut what she's doing what it actually does is enhance it actually enhances what Diane, Diane Lane is doing I, t- I can't believe I forgot about this um it but at the time it really bugged me because I just wanted Diane Lane to do to to just tell me what happened I just seen it um but rewatching the movie I realized that you need to see it because you aren't watching the same and coach doesn't show you the exact same sex sequence or sex scene She's showing it to you from other from other shots. It's actually shrewd. Um, anyway, this movie, something about the way, I mean, it is a classic erotic thriller in the sense that like a person does a thing she shouldn't do and is punished for it, but she really isn't because you're totally on her side. Mm-hmm. And and the bad person is the person. It's like the morals of the movie are all wrong for this genre, I would say. It should come as no surprise that it's based on a French film by Claude Chabrol. You know, that yeah, might explain yes. some of the slightly different <laughs> gender dynamics that come into play. But I, I, that's the exact reason that I like it. And I think it's the reason why, even though it's one of the last gasps, that it was so successful. Because it did feel like it was turning the conventionality of this genre onto its head a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, again, like, I, I, I think she's wonderful in it. The movie just, just really bugged me. Like Richard Gere, I, 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 I'm so torn about him in all kinds of ways. He's obviously one of our great stars, but man, he both can't catch a break and doesn't deserve one at the same time. If you do what I mean, like, it's <laughs> very well put. I think he's really good in this because he is both. You do feel for him, even though ultimately, I think everyone is like, "This is your fault." Um, or at least I am. Maybe I'm but showing I don't, in there. I just feel like that's so unfair. It is unfair, but that's why it's good because you're supposed to. I know I'm contradicting everything I said about like these shouldn't have ideas or emotions, but hmm. this, you know, and this movie does. And I, it, to some extent, like the knock against it being an erotic thriller is that the second half of the movie, there's no sex and it is a real downer. And you're like, what's going to happen to this family? And you're concerned with, you know, suburban pursuits and questions of morality and there is like this ambiguous ending i know it's like really boring but i mean if like the claude Sh- well anyway go on i mean it, it just american films can't handle this and adrian Lyne, who's british ultimately like it it just this movie can't it's not really asking any of these questions it really isn't like this movie is living and dying by this by her performance really as, as far as i'm concerned i think that's true it's not dying by her performance. It's entirely living by it. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think I think the best thing to do is to to relitigate whether or not these movies deserve ideas when Deepwater comes out later this year, assuming it does come out in movie theaters. And we can finally uh, understand once and for all what Adrian Lyne was trying to accomplish by setting off fireworks in this genre for 25 years. 
Does that sound we like, haven't a, even, like a plan? We haven't even talked about indecent proposals. I mean, like... <laughs> I mean, there's a we can make apologies to so many movies. American Gigolo, we didn't talk about. Dressed to Kill, Nine and a Half Weeks, we barely discussed. No Way Out, The Crush, Sliver, Eyes Wide Shut, In the Cut. Oh, The Crush. I mean, there's this is a vast market of cinema. If you are interested in these movies, there are so many that people can watch. And um, I'm glad that you guys rewatched some of them to, to talk about them with me. Thanks for participating today. Thanks for having me. <laughs>